Hey, so I want to talk to you today about Daniel chapter 2. Super excited about this. We're in a series called How to Thrive in a Chaotic World. The title of the message this morning is When Crises Come. So like, what do you do when crises come? So I'm going to talk about five things, five keys to responding to crises. Five keys to responding to crises. To review, if you're just joining us, chapter 1, uh, the nation of Babylon, uh, the superpower of the world. Babylon is ruled by a godless evil king named King Nebuchadnezzar. What they did is they would go in and invade other countries, overtake tens of thousands of prisoners of war, essentially, conquer them, uh, and so they became slaves and in exile. Among those were uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and so Babylon then uh, is a nation that had their false gods. They were named after false gods. And so uh, they took on a vegetarian diet because uh, it, it violated uh, their conscience. We talked about that last week. Daniel, we've talked about, is surrounded by Babylon, of course, the culture. It's more than just a place. It is a pattern. It is a spirit of Babylon, which has never changed them. So the book opens, and Daniel's a teenager, ends up when he's in his 80s, and he navigates life through the spirit of Babylon and shows how you can live for God in a, in a godless culture. So Daniel then and his three buddies there matriculated at the University of Babylon, which was the Ivy League of the Old Testament. They were isolated, indoctrinated, brainwashed for three years in an undergraduate program, trying to erase their identity, forget their past, um, assault everything that they knew, and try to retrain them. And they're thinking that they would think and act and react like Babylonians. We talked about how they resisted that, and how we too can resist culture. That was chapter one. Now chapter two, when Christ comes, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to read the scripture, uh, beginning in verse one. I'll read the odd verses. If you could then read the even verses. This is the word of the Lord. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He said, I had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. And they said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. If you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So if you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind, but tell me the dream, and then I'll know you can tell me what it means. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream. They do not live here among people. Hey, thank you. You may be seated. Super appreciate you being a part of that, where the people of God fill the house of God with the word of God, and it's awesome. So let's pray. Father, Thank you that we're here, and thank you for everyone who's watching online. Uh, as we look at the scripture, we ask for your help as we study it together, and thank you that the church is filled with children and infants and uh, teenagers and junior high and middle school and high school, and Father, I pray that as the scripture is open to them, their, their hearts would be attuned to your truth. I pray that in their early days and early years of life that they would come to know you and follow you, and we ask that as we turn to your word the Spirit of the living God would speak to us through the Word of God. This we prayed, and everyone agreed, saying, 
So we have the most powerful and successful leader in the world, the most, in the most magnificent and mighty nation on the face of the earth. And the leader, uh, he was a leader of the then known world, King Nebuchadnezzar. But he was subjected to dreams. He's subjected to bad dreams, just like we are subjected to them. And recorded in Daniel chapter 2 appears where he is suffering from a recurring nightmare. Then in verse 31, we begin to unpack that, which will be next week, what the dream meant. We're going to take it up to that point here. Daniel gives him a disclosure of the dream. Daniel tells the king what he wanted to know. He tells the king what he saw and he interpreted the dream. He said, this is what happened and this is what it meant. So he talks to the king about a multi-colossus, metallic figure then that had a head of gold, had a chest of, of silver, had a middle section and thighs of brass, and then legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And then what happened is that uh, in the dream, there was a vast uh, statue then that was smashed into oblivion by a stone then, which quite literally blew the statue away to smithereens. And the stone then begins to grow and grow until this vast mountain, which actually fills the earth. So imagine now the most powerful man on the earth has this recurring dream here. And he's wrestling, it says in verse 1, the one night... During the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams, plural, that he couldn't sleep. So now he's, uh, the sovereign is suffering from intense insomnia. He's up all night. Just think about it when you can't sleep at night, how that makes you feel. And he's traumatized by this most disturbing dream. You can imagine there he is tossing and turning I see him maybe, you know, wrestling with his pillow and, and just fighting to sleep. And he's waking up in a cold sweat, agitated, irritated, tormented by the worst recurring dream ever. And he knows that it's not a normal dream. So he does then what kings would do in his situation at that time, is that as he would call for his helpers, his counsel. It says in the next verse, he called his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers who are trained in uh, demonic interpretations of dreams, and more than that, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed as they stood before the king. So Nebuchadnezzar then calls on these four categories of people repeatedly throughout the book. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is calling the equivalent, really, of the White House cabinet, and so uh, he's making a very straightforward request of them. He said, you need to tell me my dream, uh, what the dream means. And we read in verse 3, he said, I had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. So now God literally flicks this dream at King Nebuchadnezzar, and he is completely undone by the dream. And so all of the four groups mentioned there in the group, they can't come up with anything. No interpretation. I mean, they can't even throw them a fortune cookie. I mean, they're like zero point, tapped out. Then the astrologers, verse 4, answer the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, which was, a, uh, well, it was just kind of a courtesy that you would do. Uh, and by the way, king, everybody lives forever, but it really matters where you're going to end up. But that's another message for another time. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. 
And so they have got one string on their dream interpretation guitar, and that is, tell us the dream. Tell us the dream, tell us the dream. And so the assembly now, where the cabinet has come together, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, guys, like, I had this dream. They're like, great, king, tell us the dream. Tell your servants the dream, and then we'll do our thing. We'll tell you the interpretation. And he gives them an impossible task here because he knew. It's like he, he was a lot of things, but one of the things he wasn't was dumb. He's a very smart guy, and he knows that if he tells them the dream, they're going to fabricate some lame but reasonably believable sounding interpretation of the dream. So he's not going to give them that opportunity. So verse 5, the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you're going to be torn from limb to limb. Your houses will be turned into heaps of fire. They'll be burned down. So question, how many people know this is not a nice person? Come on, I will disembody you. Oh, that's a bad day, right? I mean, you've had a rough boss. Like, that's a really rough boss right there. And then he's like, hey, I know it's impossible, <clears throat> but I'm going to dismember you, and I'm going to burn your house to the ground here. So then he changes his tune and kind of sweetens the pot, tries a different angle here, throws a little carrot in front of them in verse 6. But if you'll tell me what I dreamed or what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. So look, if you can tell me that and interpret, really, it's going to go really well for you. It's going to go awesome for you. And so they answer him a second time, and they say, verse 7, they say again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream. I will tell you what it means. So they're trying to work a deal here. They're trying to negotiate a deal. King, if you just give us the dream, man, that's where we shine and we can interpret the dream for you. But they're unable to work any angles and persuade the king here, even though they're the cream of the new age crop of anyone that could do this. So verse 8, he knows what they're trying to do. They're trying to stall for time. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say this. So the king is saying, look, Either you're legit or you're not legit. I know the game you're playing. I know you're trying to stall for time, but I think you're a bunch of fakes and you can't do your job and you just want to waste my time. I'm not getting ready to be done with you. Verse 9, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So if you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind, but tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. To which they reply again, to the king. No one on earth can tell the king his dream. No king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. So now the con men are beginning to raise the white flag, and they tap out because they are clueless. And get granted, verse 14, the king's dream demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell your dream. They don't live here among the people. So they're saying, King, what you're asking is a God-sized problem, and we are not gods. There's nothing that we can do. And in our work here, because they're trained for years on how to interpret dreams, they said, hey, man, in our undergrad, in our grad work, uh, we never learned about how to tell the dream. All we ever learned about was how to 
uh, interpret the dream that we are told. King, like we ain't got nothing. There's nothing we got for you. Uh, we're not prepared for this. This is impossible. So they have no explanation for the king's dream. And so they're tapping out. They struck out. They think it's unfair. But again, Nehemiah being, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar being as smart as he is, knows that if he gives them the dream, that then they're going to cook up. They have the imagination. They're going to cook something up, and they're going to try and tweak it and make him think that it's real. So he's saying, look, I just need somebody in the house that's going to shoot straight with me. But they're false prophets. And uh, so I want you to notice here the level of hatred and atrocity of this man. Uh, in other parts of Scripture, he would do things like this. He would have a father, and he would kill the sons, two sons, in front of the father. And then after he killed the two sons, then he gorged out the eyes of the father that would, that would for the rest of his life, would play the tapes of seeing their two sons murdered, and he wouldn't be able to see, and that's all he, you know, he, he lived the rest of his life playing that tape. That was Nebuchadnezzar, as evil as you can get here. And so now all of these men find themselves on the eve of their own destruction. Verse 12, the king was furious when he heard this and he ordered all the wise men of Babylon to be executed. Quite a a dramatic, amazing response, isn't it? I mean, think about that for a moment. The king is so destabilized so deconstructed that he's foaming at the mouth mad, absolutely irrational in his response, driven by deep, deep darkness. And in his heart of hearts, he knows that he's not in control and he can't take it. Verse 13, and because of the king's decree, the men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. So now the execution squad... The word on the streets is that the execution squad is going to get Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many people know this kind of changes your life? That information. The execution squad is coming after you tomorrow. Do you agree with me? It kind of changes your future. And so uh, we find then the king wants on the street is, hey, the, the word is the king wants to kill you. And so it's not a good day here. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear that they're coming for you. And now this is where they are inserted into the story here where they are sentenced to death. And so Nebuchadnezzar has issued a decree that all the bright boys be killed among you who are the brightest there. So how many people know that we got a crisis on our hands? Can we agree that, that there's a little crisis stirring uh, in the narrative here. So how did Daniel, how did Daniel respond to the crises? What can we learn from Daniel about how you respond to your crises? Obviously not as dramatic as this, but you have your crises. And so uh, what we're going to look at is how to respond to crises when it's knocking at your doorstep, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with prudence and discretion here. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time. The one thing the king didn't want, he requested to tell the king what the dream meant. So lots of drama 
Execution is in the air here. And so the, he says to the king, King, I just need you to wait a minute. Just give me a minute here, king, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you the whole thing, king, if you'll just give me a minute. And so notice here, uh, when crisis comes, what does he do? It says there, verse 14, that he responds with prudence and discretion or wisdom. So what is it to be prudent, but it is to be judicious, it is to be coupled with, with wisdom then, it is being careful about your choices. It's about thinking carefully about the future. It's stopping and thinking before you act. It's not taking any necessary unrisk that you would later regret. How many people have re regrets in life when you look back uh, in your life here? Well, so he's being prudent to minimize the chances of looking back with measures of regret for how he handled this situation. I'd also like to point out to you what he did not do. Like there's no fatalism on the part of Daniel. Uh, there's no hitting the panic button. How many people know that freaking out in times of crisis, it doesn't help? It just makes bad matters worse. There's no screaming. There's no yelling. There's no throwing a fit, which never helps. Uh, there's no meltdowns, which never help. There's no self-medicating. That doesn't help. And so we have here, when he's under pressure, he needed prudence. Likewise, we need prudence, discretion, wisdom. Daniel's life is on the line. The life of all his buddies, his friends, is on the line. So he responds then with prudence and discretion and wisdom. Notice that Daniel says, oh, just give me a little more time to, to figure this thing out, king. And so he's asking for the one thing that the king wouldn't give anyone else the king actually then does grant a moment of more time. So the only life, I want to point out something else here. It's a little aside, but I think it's important for the, for the application. And that is that the only life that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar knew was a life of yes. What do you want, king? Yes, 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 yes. King Nebuchadnezzar never heard no. All he heard his whole life was Yes. And so, uh, and so when he hears no, no one can tell you the dream, he becomes very impatient. He becomes a tyrant, throwing uh, tyrant temper tantrums uh, whenever he hears no. But I would submit to you that no is good for you. No, is, it, it, no began with God. And so never hearing no was one of the things that ruined Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to suggest to you as a point of application that if you are raising children, you know where I'm going. If you're raising children here, the natural inclination is to just tell them, oh, what do you want? Yes, yes, yeah, you love them to death. Yes, yes. And I feel like the direction of culture is like, just tell them yes here uh, because that is the natural inclination. But a parenting point here is this. If you're the parent and your children never hear the word no, I would suggest to you that you're doing them a disservice. It's something that's really important for children to hear and be able to deal with when they get older. Because otherwise, the little temper tantrums just get a little more sophisticated and uh, begin leverage later on in life here. 
And I submit to you that King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the reasons he is acting the way that he is is because he never heard no. Now he's hearing, no, we can't do it. No, 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 King Nebuchadnezzar. So take it to heart for however it applies to your situation. Verse 17, then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, uh, what had happened. I want to point out something here. They were given four demonic names by the king. But those names uh, were not their God-given names. And here are their God-given, God-honoring names. And when Daniel refers to them, he only refers to them as their names given by God. I think there's a little message in here for us. The point is, it doesn't matter what the king gave you as a name. Here is your God-given name. God, the name God gives you, what God speaks over your life, is what will stand forever. So he reminds them of their God-given names, though in culture, they were hearing their God-dishonoring names here. And I wanted to just say that uh, never allow what others call you to get inside you. It is so important. Things that you've been called in uh, in growing up that can shape you, that can be formative, that even can become your identity, uh, referring to the things that kids can be brutal about. And I think that what we needed to do, and we talked about this briefly last week, is to remind yourself who you are and whose you are, and to remind yourself what God calls you. So now on the eve of the day when Daniel will be killed by edict of the king, he goes to his friends and tells them, hey, friends, we need help from God, verse 18. He urged them to ask God, the God of heaven, to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Their mindset is like this. Daniel goes to him and says, hey, you, and you, and you, uh, we need to stay alive. Uh, can we all agree that? Like, like we want to stay alive here. What is amazing is that these guys, about 18 years old, living in a foreign land, stripped of everything familiar and comfortable and everything that they knew, indoctrinated, brainwashed, now they still are relying on the Lord. In the midst of a godless uh, culture, they are staying true to the Lord. And Daniel is saying to them, hey, we need to seek the face of God. And this is exactly what they do. And so then God in that time reveals to Daniel the dream and its interpretation. So Daniel calls a prayer meeting with his buddies. I want to point out who are his buddies. This is like his crew. This is his inner circle. Uh, This is his uh, his small group, his life group, his rooted group, whatever you want to call it there. But we see in Daniel's life the priority of prayer, the place of prayer as a teenager, as a young adult, Daniel goes back to his three friends and says, hey, guys, you need to listen here, and uh, we need to get a little bit more time, or we're going to go to the God of heaven, and we're going to ask God to show us his plan. And this is one incredible prayer meeting here. And what I love about this is that there are four young men praying in pagan Babylon, and it says, hey, Hananiah, Hey, Mishael. Hey, Azariah. I'm Daniel, and this is serious, and either God shows up or we're done. 
We need to talk to the Lord about this. Daniel was a praying person. In Daniel 6, 10, it says three times he prayed, and people didn't really like that. So here we see Daniel, and how does he make it through Babylon? How does a young man, young woman, young adult, grown adult, how do you make it in Babylon today? Praying here, and they knew that if God didn't act supernaturally, give this revelation to Daniel about the dream, he and his friends would be executed. No other options. So when crises comes, number one, you respond with prudence, stopping and thinking before acting. Number two, you respond in prayer. I love that prayer is their only option, uh, that when they had a problem, they prayed. So it speaks to us then of facing all of our problems through prayer, filtering our problems, our crises through prayer, getting in, uh, you know, going to the command center and speaking to the commander in chief is what they did. So they go, hey, God, uh, we need to see things as you see things. There's things that we don't see. There's a dream that we don't know. We need to know what we don't know. We need to know what you know about our situation. So tell us how to make it through our battle here in Babylon. And so they needed God urgently and desperately and continually in their Babylon. And I would submit to you that you also, you need God urgently, desperately, and continually, just like they did. And so what we see in Daniel is, the, the, is there's commentary about his life that we don't see. I want to talk about that. We, we saw what he did, and I want to talk about what he, didn't, what he didn't do. He didn't have a meltdown, I believe, because he was rooted and centered uh, in theology there of who God was. So he doesn't respond with panic, no anxiety, no fear, no stress. Uh, he doesn't even rely on his experience, which was considerable for a young man, or his education, which was the best of the best, or his intelligence, uh, his, intel his towering intellect here. He doesn't take an opinion poll. He just he says, I'm going to call on God. I'm going to get my friends. We're going to call on God. So our little small group here, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have church. I'm going to reach out to the God of heaven. God is going to help us. And here's the point. Here's the point. Is that you want your people like he had his people, his crew, in place before the crisis. I can tell you, as having been a pastor for a, a little while, one of the things that I frequently experience is that people don't have a crew in place before the crisis, so they don't know what to do. So, and I'm happy that people call the church, and I'm happy that people call me, but, but so often, more times than I, I, I would hope for, they don't have a crew. And then they hit crises, and they don't know what to do. So here's an urgent time for them to pray. And Daniel, now look, watch. He has built into his life these significant relationships that he can invite them to walk through the, the crises in prayer and seek God with him in prayer. So we need a crew before the crises comes. So if you're sitting here this morning, you can't, you can't rattle off your crew I want to encourage you to think about this, to begin to, to build this intentionally into your life. So when crisis comes, number one, 
respond in prudence. Think before you act. So you're not going to have measures of regret. Number two, respond with prayer. Number three, get your people. Get your people, friends. I'm urging you with everything that's within me. And so, uh, so look at the result then of prayer, verse 19. That night, what night? The night they prayed, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Their prayer worked. God, the God of heaven heard their prayer. Now watch what he does. Then Daniel left off and went his way. Huh? Then Daniel blessed. Or your, your, your Bible might read, praise the God of heaven here. So now when you spend time praying and asking God for something, be sure that you thank him, you bless him, you praise him for what he's done. So Daniel then pauses and praises God, 18, 19 years old. He's extolling God. He's commending God for who he is. So when Christ came, then number four, he praised God. Something you want to build into your life if you're not already doing that. So how does then... Uh, how does he do it? Well, I want to just, I want to remind you that no matter how bad your situation, now, now think about his situation. He's on uh, execution orders for his life. It's pretty bad. Madman Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar wants him dead here, but there's always something to praise God for and to bless God for. And so how does a young adult, how does a young adult make it through Babylon? centered on God. Okay, he said, watch, watch this. I'm going to show you this. Verse 20. Here's how young adults, all young adults, please tap in. All the older adults do the same. He says, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he is all wisdom and power, acknowledging who God is. 21, further acknowledging. He says, he controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and Knowledge to the scholars. So when Christ comes, you want to just look up. You want to remind yourself of who God is. And he's saying that, look, God is the one who is sovereign, the transcendent architect over all. Daniel, he made it in Babylon because of his sound theology, because he's rooted and centered in God here in biblical orthodoxy, and he acknowledges that. And you hear it, it is coming out in his, his prayer here. He says, look, there's a king above all kings and kingdoms. And uh, there, is a, there is a God who is in control of Nebuchadnezzar who thinks that he's in control. But it is Yahweh who is in absolute and complete control. And then verse 22, he reveals the deep and mysterious things. He knows what lies hidden in the darkness, though he's summoned by light. I thank you and I praise you, God of my ancestors, for you've given me wisdom and strength, and you've told me what he asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Friends, if I could say this, we want to be, and everybody watching online, we want to be just like that. Every teenager, every young person, you want to be just like that rooted and grounded, immovable and unshakable in the truth. Watch. In a multi-polytheistic uh, culture there, where they had zillions of gods, Daniel points to the one and the true God who knows the end from the beginning. Oh, we understand that the same is true in America today. 
So I'm pleading with you, how are you going to survive the modern day spirit of Babylon that is pervasive in our culture? We must be like this. Our culture is increasingly filled uh, with the talk of small g gods here. And we too can be rooted and grounded in biblical truth in the midst of our polytheistic, ever-increasing uh, polytheistic culture. Verse 24. Then Daniel went to see Arioch. This is the direction of the execution squad, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king. Oh, I love that. I mean, there's something about he's godly and he's humble, but there's like this audacious confidence that he has in God. Take me to the king. Now I will tell him the meaning of this dream. And Daniel says, bring me before Nebuchadnezzar. My God has got this. And I'm going to go for it. Uh, God has got me. God can do it. And I'm going to step up. And I'm going to talk to that guy. Take me to the king. It's pretty awesome. So when crisis comes, I remind you that we respond with prudence. We respond with prayer. Get your people. Praise God. And number four, be purposeful. Be intentional. Step out here. And so uh, he says to the king, who is this young upstart here? Verse 27. Daniel replied, there's no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, no fortune tellers that can reveal the king's secret. He says, look, I can't do it, king. And he's wondering, like, I'm sure the king's wondering, like, who's this young upstart? Like, who is this? Guy's pretty bold, very bold, you know, young man there. He's thinking to himself, you know, what, what, are you, what are you doing here if you don't know? And then he says, verse 28, but there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets or mysteries. And he's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future or the latter days. And I will tell you your dream and visions that you saw as you lay on your bed. So Daniel is saying, hey, no one, no one can do it, king. But I'm, I'm telling you, not because I'm super smart, not because I have all kinds of intuition here, I'm spiritual, none of that king. He said, but there is a sovereign, and I want us to get this. There's a sovereign control of God that extends to the dream patterns of pagan kings. We get all freaked out you know, about so many things in life, but can we just be reminded right here that the sovereign control of God extends then to the brain patterns, the dream patterns of a pagan king. This is how much control God has over the universe. Uh, and remember that uh, this as we look at unfolding world history and the new world order uh, and all of that, God is actually in control of kings and kingdoms of the world and his kingdom will, will never come to an end. So as I close and the worship team comes up, he says, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. Who reveals the secrets? God has shown you what's going to happen. And then verse 30, saying, it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God. He gives glory to God here, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. And so, and then the, the story unfolds. We'll talk about it. Next week, so you have to come back next week. have to invite your friends. But ultimately, the stone there, this is 
is Jesus Christ, comes and crushes all other nations. And anything that doesn't start with him, Jesus comes down and doesn't work. And ultimately, uh, it all crumbles. So I just want to say in closing that, look, everything, everything about life, every day, start with Jesus. Every new year, start with Jesus. Every new college course, college experience, begin with Jesus. Start your relationships with Jesus. Start your marriage with Jesus. Start your family with Jesus. Start your career with Jesus. Start your parenting with Jesus. Start your business with Jesus. Start your schedule with Jesus. Start your finances, everything with him. When crises hits, we get back to Jesus. And so, Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us again and again and again through your scripture, Lord, of how we, when crises comes, may there be a prudence, carefulness, thoughtfulness, a prayerfulness, a purposefulness about our lives. Father, that we would have our people, that we would praise you, that we would be purposeful, pray that you would do this and you would do more. In Christ's name, amen.